0: All right, why don't you uh, take your Bibles, go to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, I have uh, joyfully uh, contracted the disease that is going around places with the flu and the bronchitis and all the good stuff, so uh, the goal is for me not to burst into a coughing fit uh, or to swear when I start sniffling, so (laughs) you can vote for whatever one you hope I do. I'm going to try to avoid both. (laughs) So Philippians chapter four, we are um, we're kind of coming to the end of the the book of Philippians, which, I, to be honest with you, I'm kind of kind of disappointed by. It. I mean, it's a it's a fantastic book, and it's been one that God's been using in my own heart, my own life. Um, as you get to the the end of chapter uh, Philippians, you get to chapter four, and Paul starts kind of wrapping things up, and, and he's about to I mean, really, where he's going, he's going to close out with a whole series of one liners. Um, and really short snippets, and then he's going to do some appreciation things at the end. Um, and so this morning, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and read the first nine verses of Philippians chapter 4, because they kind of go together. They're all kind of buckshot like that, but, but we're not going to get to all of those. So um, if you see something in the next nine verses that I'm not going to deal with this morning, but we read it this morning. That means you want to come back the next week or two because uh, this is one we're going to take care of. It. So, Philippians chapter four, starting in verse one, Paul says this. So then, my dearly loved, my longed for brothers and sisters, my joy, my crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any moral excellence, if there's anything praiseworthy, then dwell on these things. Do what you've learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. So so you kind of get the idea. Paul is closing out, and he's saying, Okay, let me give you as much as I can at the end of this. It's, it's kind of like mom and dad getting ready to go out on a date that night, and they're leaving the kids at home by themselves. Okay, make sure that you fill the dishwasher, make sure that you clean up after yourself, make sure that you brush your teeth before bed and make sure you don't kill each other, okay? There's the basic list that kind of goes there. So so Paul is kind of wrapping up his conversation with the Philippian church by laying out some of those things. But I I think it's really important for us, obviously, to start in verse 1 because that's the first verse of chapter 4. But if you look at verse 1, what you find is a command to stand firm in the Lord. Now, does that sound familiar to anybody? See, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says this. Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, I want you to live your life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Then whether I come and see you or if I'm absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. So, so what's happening here in verse 1 of chapter 4 is Paul is putting the closing parentheses up. So in chapter 1, verse 27, he threw the first bracket up. In chapter 4, verse 1, he's throwing the second bracket up. And so in between those two brackets, what you have is what it means to stand firm in the Lord. So so just by way of, of review. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says, what I want you to do is have the same mind with each other. I want you to work towards unity with each other. I want you to, chapter 2, verse 3, count others more significant than yourself. Uh, Esteem their interests. Do the math. And when you do the math, I want them to add up more than you. Chapter 2, verse 5, I want you to have the same humble attitude that Jesus Christ had himself, who, though he was in the form of God was willing to humble himself, made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant, and became obedient to death, even the death on the cross for you. So, so to stand firm, I want you to have that same humble attitude. To, to stand firm means to allow the process of sanctification and God's work in your heart to continue so that you stop whining. Whining. No more grumbling, no more complaining. That's what it looks like to stand firm in the Lord. I want you to celebrate those people among you who who sacrifice in order to serve Jesus Christ. I want you to honor those people who are willing to leave everything behind to to make much of Christ. Chapter three, he says to stand firm means to don't think you're something, Paul says, oh, you think you're something? I much more so. I was, and he goes through his long laundry list of qualifications of what should have made him wonderful in the eyes of God. But what he realized is as he tallied those things up, he recognized the fact that as God viewed those, God saw them as filthy rags. And so Paul counted them as dung compared to the surpassing worth of gaining Jesus Christ. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, don't forget the rescue. Make every effort to pursue Jesus Christ. Take hold of Jesus Christ because Jesus Christ has taken hold of you. Last week we talked about don't, don't live in the past. Don't dwell in the past. Forget those things that are behind and instead press forward, press on. Continue moving forward and live like Jesus is coming. And so Paul says, okay, now what I want you to do is stand firm, and that's what stand firm looks like. So you look at the beginning bracket of chapter 1, verse 27, and the ending bracket in chapter 4, verse 1, and as you read everything in between, you know what Paul is trying to communicate to the Philippian church in that moment is what it means when he says, stand firm in the Lord. What I find really fascinating is that Paul, in verse 1, kind of goes hallmark on us, doesn't he? My... Dearly loved, my longed for, my brothers, my sisters, my joy, my crown, he ends it, my dear friends. I mean, he is using every superlative he can come up with. He is completely bathing what he is saying in true love. So everything that he is about to say that we're going to talk about even this morning is being carried across a bridge of deep relationship And some of the things that he has to say, even this morning, they sting a little. So we would do well to learn from the the example of Paul to be careful to uh, communicate those things that are hard communication, that are difficult to say to others, and to do it in such a way that it's marked by this love and appreciation for people, which is very unlike our culture today, isn't it? Our culture today doesn't care about the love and appreciation of other people it cares about being right it cares about its opinion being heard but here Paul says I have some I have some difficult things I need to tell you but I want you to understand I love you and everything he says is accepted by the Philippian church because it's being spoken of through a relationship of love respect and family we do well to follow that and so Paul says stand firm all right, so before we jump into the first one, let me ask you a question just kind of by way of introduction. Have any of you had the awkward opportunity to ever be surprised by hearing your name spoken when you didn't expect it? Okay, kind of unnerving, isn't it? To be, to be sitting there in, um, sorry, that is the worst taste ever. I threw a menthol cough drop in this hot water. Tastes like I'm eating Vapor VapoRub, Whew. and I have a mint cough drop with it. So, it, it actually, literally, it completely took me. I was like, "I got nothing." <laughs> Excuse me, <coughs> cough right in the microphone for you guys. Um, so, so it's it's a little unnerving. Speaking of unnerving, it's a little unnerving to be sitting someplace with just a bunch of people and all of a sudden have your name spoken. I, I don't know that I have a, a um. An experience with that. I do have an experience of seeing my face when I didn't expect to see it. So back in the day, this is is a long time ago. So I've gone to uh, China a number of times, uh, a handful of times, and led trips to China to visit many of our friends who are over there uh, teaching in the universities and and, and doing different work for the cause of Christ in China. And so um, I've gone over a few times, and one of the times I went, I went with a guy who had one of the greatest cameras I've ever seen. I mean, this thing was amazing. So he, I mean, he took a gazillion pictures. One of the towns that we went to was a, <laughs> this cracks me up to say, it was just a small town. And 1.5 million people in it, but it's just a small town and nobody's ever heard of it. That's the crazy part. And so uh, we were there and uh, a buddy of mine, the guy with the camera and I were walking down the street about the time that this preschool let out and this preschool was filled with orphans. And so we're walking out, and 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 the, to be Caucasian in that the deep area of China, um, you get noticed. And so we're walking down the street, and people are looking at us funny. But all of a sudden, all of these kids come out, and it was like we were rock stars. And they were all four, or five years old. So it's like they're all like, oh, and they're going crazy. And so we're snapping pictures with him and giving them high fives and stuff. And, I, you know, I, I was pretty laid back and calm. And so I'm sure I didn't leave an impact on him. But we had all these things going on. And, and one little dude, I mean, just an adorable little dude like this, he just had like this perfectly round head. I mean, he was just a huge smile. And Mark uh, Foreman was the guy taking the picture. And I'm like, Mark, come here. So, so I'm like, get a picture? And he's the kid's like, yeah. And it was digital camera. So we, we do the picture. And then Mark turns around and shows it to him. And he's like, hee, It was so awesome. So we continue our trip. No big deal. Now, fast forward a year and a half. A year and a half later, I'm in my office, and I'm doing a little work for an Orphan's Sunday or something at the church. So I'm trying to find a good picture, and so I go on Google, and I Google, okay, orphan picture. Man, I find all kinds of stuff. No big deal. But then I find this website that has free stock photos, so I wasn't doing it illegally, just so you're aware. And I go to the free stock photo site, and I'm like, all right, I'm not having any luck anyplace else. Let's try this. Orphans. The first picture that pops up is me with the little dude. (laughs) And I was like, whoa! What just happened? Okay, so then I run down the the hallway to Mark's office, and I'm like, Foreman, what? He's like, oh, I uploaded those. That's weird. I'm like, weird doesn't even explain it, man. Okay, now, now, wait, it gets weirder. Fast forward about three or four months, we have a couple in our church at the time who are missionaries in Egypt. Mom and dad went to visit the couple in Egypt. As they're driving down the road, they look up at a billboard, and there's my huge face (laughs) with the little dude on a billboard in Egypt. It's like, I'm famous, and I got nothing to show for it. Yeah, it's a little, little surprising when those things happen because you don't expect it. Now, let me let's set the context for you a little bit. The, the, the way that the Bible, is, particularly um, Paul's letters to these churches, the way that it worked is Paul would write the letter and he would send it to the church. And in this case, it was probably Epaphroditus. We've talked about him in the last few weeks. And they, they, uh, Epaphroditus carries the letter uh, to um, uh, the church of Philippi. And, and when they're getting a letter from the apostle Paul, it's kind of a big deal. And so it wasn't like everybody would get their own copy. Instead, what would happen is word would travel, we have a letter, we're all going to gather, And so they would do this huge event where anybody who was in the local congregation would, 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 would come alongside and, and they, would, they would arrive and, they would, and word would spread, and there was probably, I don't know, probably food, that's normally how churches do things. So maybe back in the day they did food too. And there's food and all kinds of enthusiasm and excitement they're going to gather, and the pastor, or maybe a letter, uh, an elder, or, or maybe just somebody else in the church who could read, would get up and they would read the letter. Out loud, so the whole congregation, everybody who was gathered, could hear it. That, that's the way the Philippians was written to be read out loud. You pray that Euodia and Syntyche volunteered in the nursery that morning, because as they gather, the man reading finishes verse one, is okay, in this manner, stand firm, in the Lord, dear friends, I urge, oh boy. I urge you, Odea, I urge Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. What Paul is saying to their church right now is, get along. And he calls out two very specific people. Now, they're not bad women, they're, they're, they're not bad women. These, these are women, look at verse uh, three. He says, I also ask you, my true partner, to help these women who have, these women have contended for the gospel at my side along with Clement and the rest of the coworkers and their names are written in the book of life. They're not bad women. They've, they've worked alongside Paul. Their names are written in heaven. Uh, it's not that there's one of well, those women is evil and the other one is not. Paul actually goes out of his way to be very careful with how he uh, um, addresses these women. In fact, it's, it's unusual for the verb to show up before both of their names. Usually it would be, hey, I urge Euodia and Syntyche just to get along. But Paul, and many believe in an effort to keep it fair, said, I urge Euodia, I urge Syntyche. Get along. So, I mean, he's not showing any favoritism. Uh, and we have no idea what their argument was about. What we do know is it probably wasn't anything of a theological nature, Because Paul doesn't just say little about theological things, right? I mean, you remember back in the book of Galatians, he lit up the the false teachers in Galatia. He has no problem calling out false teaching. He has no problem calling out a theological problem. But this one, this one seems to be relational. And those are heartbreaking, aren't they? When there's just something that gets in the way we're here and I'll use these two women these two women just can't get around it. And it's big enough that Paul addresses it in his letter to the entire church. How does this happen? I mean, how do these two women who both contended for the faith alongside Paul, both have their names written in the book of heaven, and they're well-known, Paul knows them well. How do these two women who have so much in common end up having such a disagreement? We don't know specifically about Euodia and Syntyche. What I can point to is other passages that speak of such things, like James chapter 4, it says this, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? Your desire, you desire and you don't have. You murder and you covet, but you can't obtain. You fight and wage war. So, so what Paul is, or sorry, James is saying in that passage is is, is he talks about the source of wars. Wars is that widespread conflict, the the theater of war. Think World War II, the area of of Europe. The fights are those skirmishes or those conflicts, those those hand to hand brawls that would happen in the the back alleys, those personal battles. So, as long as there are people, (laughs) wherever there are people, there's going to be big wars and petty scuffles. And and James says, what is the source of these things? Where are they coming from? Your passions. The Greek word there is your hedone, that's where we get the word hedonism from. It's your desire without restraint. You're, You're seeking pleasure with no boundaries. It's your passion to get what you want, no matter what. He says those passions are in you, and you are waging war, that means you, the, the Greek word there is strategio. It means you are strategizing ways to get your own way. That's the source of disharmony. Is you're willing, you have this passion in your heart, and you're gonna try to find a way to get your own way, to get that passion fulfilled. Your selfish passions, your self-interests, your pride your desire for position, all of those things mean you're not standing firm. Because if you remember the list of what standing firm looks like, it means count other people's interests more important than your own. Be humble. Adopt the same spirit of humility that was in Jesus Christ. Serve one another. I mean, that, that, that list went on and on and on, but instead, because of these selfish passions, There was disharmony, and it leads to disputes. Who are you arguing with right now? Who are you arguing with right now? Why? Because they're not a good start. What is the source of wars and fights among you? They come from your passions that are waging war within you. So why, why do these things happen? Why, how can two women who have so much in common come to such a place of disagreement, selfish pride? I think the second one we can see in Ephesians 4 is when offenses aren't forgiven. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. So, so let me kind of walk through what, what, what Paul does here in the book of Ephesians. He, he gives you a, like a, a ladder. This is, this is what comes first. This is what comes second. This is what comes third. And it just continues to come. He says, so, so put away all bitterness. What is bitterness? Bitterness is this resentment or a grudge. So I'm going to kind of couch it in the picture of a, a wound or an injury. That, the bitterness it starts, just the wound happens. So, so you end up with a, a huge cut or something. So the, the wound happens. And it can start relatively small. But in, 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 in uh, personal relationships, when your pride is offended, your irritation grows and you develop this sore attitude. Anger. Anger comes next. It's that internal smoldering. It's that wound that we spoke of. So so it's deep in the flesh and it's getting worse by the day and nobody really notices because it's underneath the skin. To go back to the personal offense, it's this deep feeling of animosity and resentment against the person who has offended you and it just settles in your chest. You can feel it. Wrath. Wrath is that internal, then external rage. Talk about the wound. The wound doesn't look like much. It just looks like a little bit of a scar there. But but what it hurts like crazy when you touch it, somebody walks by and puts a finger on it and you freak out because obviously it's not healed and that wound is just developing something nasty underneath. When it comes to wrath in your personal relationships, it's that that that. Bitterness has grown and the anger has festered, and now something is said. It can be innocent, it can be offhanded, but as soon as it's said, a button is hit and there is an escalation in your temper. It's a flying off of the handle. Put aside shouting. I don't know that shouting is exactly a great translation of that word. Clamoring is just a word that we don't use very often, so I think that's why they went with shouting. The, the idea of going back to the wound is now the wound controls everything you do. It controls where you go and where you don't go, Who, who what, what, you, what exercises you can do, what exercises you can't do, how long you'll go someplace, and how you refuse to go to that place because you know that something's going to hit it and it's going to cause a... A massive pain in your soul. This shouting or this clamoring is—it's it, it's this, this this personal insult has developed so deeply in you. There's no longer any self-control, and when a trigger point happens, the result's already predetermined, because you don't care who hears you anymore, and so you're just gonna go off. Slander, the biting tongue, the character assassination. You're saying things about the person who has harmed you that, that may or may not be true. And at the very least, if it is true, it's completely lacking of context. So, so what you're trying to do is dismantle the person with that slander. And it all ends up in malice. Malice is stage four gangrene. It's full on out of control. Your motives your thoughts your actions are all wrapped up in the originally relatively small offense that's now a raging wildfire in you so so how do these disagreements happen by something small being left unforgiven Paul, in the next verse, in chapter four, verse 32, says, no, instead, of, no. I want you to be kind, I want you to be compassionate, I want you to be forgiving other people as God in Jesus Christ has forgiven you. See, what Paul does, he goes back to Matthew 18, which we talked about last week. What your life should demonstrate is an understanding of the grace that you've been given, and so you'd be willing to show that grace to somebody else. You've been forgiven a debt of six million dollars So when the dude that owes you $10 can't pay, you should be willing to forgive that. How dare you hold that person and send them to collections over $10 when in your life you've been forgiven so much more. Why is Paul even concerned about these two ladies getting along? Why is it such an issue at all? There's two reasons for that. The first is this, the body of Christ is affected by it. Excuse me for a second. I figured you were all doing it, I could do it too. (laughs) The body of Christ is, is affected by the conflict between these two women. Uh, you can see that in verse three, when when Paul tells them, "Listen, I want you, my true partner, to come alongside them if they're not able to to settle their disagreement." That that true partner, just an aside, we're not sure who that is. Some versions say true yoke fellow. Some versions actually translate that as a name, um, <clears throat> the Greek word, does transliterate it right into a name, because he could be talking to some specific individual. We we don't know. But what Paul's saying is, because of the disunity between Euodia and Syntyche, it's affecting the whole body. You've experienced that. You you know how that works. So so let's say there's a whole bunch of you getting together for dinner or something, right? And, And a pile of you are in the room together, and you're already getting ready, and then the last couple arrives. And this married couple walks in, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out there was an argument in the car on the way, right? I mean she's like steely-eyed and focused, and he's like, whatever, <laughs> right? And so they're walking in, and, and you, everybody's kind of aware, but not really aware, but we're gonna play it off like nothing's going, hey, good to see you, how things going? Okay, good, good. And then in that moment, you get this one little, The well, we would have been on time, except for he couldn't, and it's like. <laughs> that changes the entire evening, doesn't it? It sets everybody on defensive. It it, it creates this awkwardness that's not the good awkward. It creates this awkwardness like people are like, ah. And the entire group is affected. The same thing happens when there are two members of the body of Christ who are in complete disagreement and arguing and fighting. Man, listen, you don't need a false teacher to come in and undermine the authority of God's word. You simply need two ladies or two men or two families to reach malice mode. And Satan has his way. So, deal with it. Get along. What's the second reason that Paul is concerned about this petty argument? The second reason is this. That distraction between the two people can become the, 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 the opening that Satan is actually looking for to get in on one of those people. You can have these two individuals who are so focused on argue, the argument they have with each other, they're no longer being vigilant. They're no longer keeping their eyes open for the attacks of Satan. And the, your enemy, Satan himself, he prowls around like a lion, trying to devour you. You're supposed to stay on guard, but when your focus isn't on the damage he's trying to do to you, but is instead on what they think about the carpet versus what you think about the carpet, Satan has an opening. Paul talks about the Second Corinthians 2. It's an interesting little spot in there. He's, he's talking to the church at Corinth, and, and, and we're not exactly sure who he's talking about. Um, it could be a fellow that he had mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5 who was in gross, heinous mor- immorality, and, and he told the church back then, put him out of your church. Um, In 2 Corinthians 2, what it says is, there's this man who you have put out of your church is kind of the the inference there, and I want to encourage you, he is repenting, he is coming back. I want you to reaffirm your love for him. I want you to to bring him back after that huge conflict. Uh, Why? Why does he say that? He says, so that we may not be taken advantage of by Satan, because we're not ignorant of Satan's schemes. So what I want you to do is see that repentant spirit I want you to, forgive me, I want you to uh, alleviate the conflict that is between the two of you because because, uh, let's be clear, Satan is no fool. He knows when there's conflict, the focus is no longer on Jesus. The focus is no longer on standing firm. It's now on things that don't matter. So now you're wide open for attack. I was not looking for a, a video illustration this week There's no sound to this. I'm just going to throw this up there. But this came across, it's like this is exactly what we're talking about here in Philippians. See, you've got two gazelles, I'll call them gazelles, who are going at it. And they're so focused on their fight, they're so focused on their aggression, they're not paying attention to this thing that's approaching in the background. Everybody else notices, so they take off. However, these two, no, we're going to get red carpet, not blue carpet. And uh, what they've just done is left themselves wide open for the lion. Red carpet. Red carpet. Red carpet. <laughs> well played. See, you do the joke. I say it out loud. I get to laugh. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, Satan's no fool. He knows when there's a conflict, the focus is no longer on Jesus. The focus is no longer on standing firm. It's now on things that just don't matter. And so now he's in the clear to attack. Paul calls these ladies out, and he begs both of them, agree in the Lord. He's not saying agree on the carpet color. He's not saying agree on every little thing. He's not saying agree on details. He's saying agree in the Lord. Can't you remember that both of you have your names written in heaven? Can't both of you remember where you were and where you are now? Can't you both remember that you were lost sinners that Jesus Christ had to die for? Man, focus on that. Stop focusing on the insignificant. Get along. This is going to come up next week. Um, I I just want to kind of land on this. Kind of helps us end in a a more upbeat way for this morning. And verse four is one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I will say rejoice. Right? Now, it's a wonderful verse. Um, There's some things that we need to know about it. First of all, when God repeats himself, we should pay attention. Right, I mean, when I repeat myself, it's usually second service, and usually just before I do it, I'm like, have I said this already? I feel like I've said this already. When God repeats himself, it means we should stop everything that we're doing, pay attention. Something else you should notice here, it never says to rejoice in your circumstances. It never says to rejoice in your surroundings. It says to rejoice in him. Something else to notice, it never commands you to feel joy. Do you hear that? It never commands you to feel joy. You need to believe you can rejoice in him because you have every reason to rejoice in him. So that's where we're gonna land is asking you that question. Do you have a reason to rejoice in him? So what I've used through the Philippians series is this goofy picture of words that has stuck in my head. When you remember what you don't have, and what you don't have is a relationship with God himself. What you don't have is peace with the one who created you. And you can't do anything about that yourself. There are no good deeds you can accomplish. There's no trip you can take. There's no Bible big enough for you to carry. There's no church attendance that you can repeatedly do time and time again. There is no baptismal water that can wash you clean enough to have peace with God. There is nothing you can do. You can't do anything to bring about that peace. It's really dark. But it makes the next part so bright. Because while you couldn't, Jesus did. And so what you do have, what you do have is peace with God. It has nothing to do with anything you've done. It's what's been done for you. It's not about your righteousness. It's the righteousness that's been credited to your account. God views you as his child, adopted into his family, with his name, rightful heir of all of his possessions, you are are his in Jesus Christ. And as awesome as that is, it's gonna be so much better. Because one day, one day we'll be free from sin completely. There'll be no more sin, no more death, no more sickness, praise God, no more coughing. No more cancer, no more heartache. Yeah, man, Frankie, the problem is is I look back and I think I'm just having trouble rejoicing. I get it. He's not commanding you to stop crying. He's not commanding you to stop weeping. He's not commanding you to stop mourning. He's just commanding you to remember that in the middle of that mourning, in the middle of the weeping, in the middle of the crying, that there is one who is worthy of being rejoiced in because he has taken care of the greatest need you could ever have. Because you're not rejoicing in your circumstances, which always change. You're rejoicing in your God who never does. So this morning, if you are with us and you have the foggiest idea of what we're talking about, I just want to encourage you to know that we're not here talking about how wonderful church we are. We love added members. It's encouraging. It's fun. But it's not like keeping score. The most important thing that we could ever reflect on is how lost we were and how merciful God is. So if you've never tasted and seen the goodness of God, if you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, today is the day of salvation. Don't leave here without doing that. Well, how do I do that? Do I give a certain amount of money? No. No matter what you've heard on TV, that is not what you do. You know how you do that? You confess with your mouth what your life has proven to be true time and time again, that you are lost and a sinner and you can't do anything about it yourself, but Christ Jesus came pushed you out of the way and took your place on the cross where he willingly laid down. He willingly laid down his life for you. He was laid in the tomb and then three days later, he took his life back up again. And right now he lives and so will you. Confess that with your mouth and you'll be saved. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your very, very kind ways towards us. Thank you for your incredible mercy the depth that we can't even begin to understand. And Lord, today I pray, if there's one here who doesn't know Christ, that today would be the day of salvation. Father, would they cry out to you from their heart that they're lost and they need a Savior and they put their trust in Jesus and in Jesus alone. Then Lord, for those who are among us today who might be wrestling with arguments, (laughs) with some of those frustrations and with, with, with relationships, God, would they be able to lay down their battle armor, and Father, instead, may they be marked by humility. May they approach the brother or sister who they're at odds with. May they seek forgiveness and offer forgiveness. Father, may they remember, even right now, how big you are, how good you are, and what it is they have to rejoice in. For it's in Jesus' good name I pray. Amen.